0: This week on Dig Me Out... I think this, this record might have the most reverb ever put on guitars. Until <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> reverb. Tim and Jay review The Lizard by Saigon Kick.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out I'm your host Tim Minichi, and joining me as always my co-host Mr. Jason Ziak Jay, it's episode 203 We're in season 4, getting close to the end of season 4, Jay And we have one of your picks this week Me? Yeah, you! Oh After a couple weeks of interviews We haven't done any in a while so we decided to pack them back to back. We are coming back with an album review that you made uh, the selection for. And it is the band Saigon Kick. And their 1992 record, The Lizard. So Jay, tell me, why did you select this record for us to review?
0: Oh, uh, well, the, uh, two reasons. One would be most people probably associate the band with the the quote-unquote power ballad hit mtv hit
1: love is on Um, the way
0: love is on the way Uh, so i wanted to you know contrast that sound with what the rest of the record sounds like which is i think pretty different
1: now jay i'm gonna have to nitpick you okay how you described love is on the way because i happen to have read a book (laughs) called power ballad a definitive guide to hard rock softer side and and then as a matter of fact this album or excuse me love is on the way is cannot considered a power ballad
0: according to the book
1: according to the book shall i read you the very short entry on page 263 of power ballad a definitive guide to hard rock softer side the book has a beautiful
0: cover by the way it
1: does have a beautiful cover While this is a nice ballad From an underappreciated band of the era It's not a power ballad It lacks the all-important power area No Mm. guitars, no gang vocals Heck, there aren't even any drums to kick in And give the thing a boost of adrenaline Or a tempo Wow So There you go I
0: I can see that point I think the power comes from the harmony But uh, we can quibble, quibble over that later The other reason I picked for the record was they were always one of those bands out of the late '80s kind of hair metal scene. They would they got press in that type of media and associated with those kind of bands, but they were also kind of whispered about, and I think there was some hope that maybe they were going to be the next big thing. You know, gonna they were going to be one of the bands to change music. I'm trying to think of some others we may have already reviewed, some others that were thought of, oh, like Mother Love Bone, like a band mm-hmm. like that, right? Where it's, they were kind of on the tail end of that and it could fit in with that sound a little bit, but they were also different enough where it got people's, I think, imaginations working in terms of, you know, is this the future of, of hard rock music? Um, and they were one of the bands that I think some folks thought maybe, you know, we're going to be the ones to revolutionize things, so. And also... You know, it came out at an interesting time. 1992 was a pretty important year. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of fun to listen to, you know, another part of that year.
1: It should be noted that Power Ballad is available both in paperback and for your Kindle. Great stocking (laughs) stuffer for the holiday season. Jay, let's move on to the all-important... What's
0: the full title?
1: Power Ballad, A Definitive Guide to Hard Rock, Softer Side, Volume 1. At Amazon.com. At Amazon.com, you can also uh, you know buy them straight from the author if you so choose. Who has more stop than a by- few copies in his basement? <laughs> stop by the merch table. Yeah, stop by the stop by the uh, the merch table or your local. Uh, no, it's not available in any bookstores. It's a uh, print-on-demand, the future of publishing for people like me. Jay, let's talk about the history of. Saigon Kick.
0: History of the band.
1: So the band formed in Miami, Florida in 1998. Uh, was lead vocalist Matt Kramer, guitarist Jason Bieler or Bieliler, Biler, Bueller? Bueller. along with bassist Tom Defile and drummer Phil Verone. They signed to Third Stone Records in 1990, and then they released their self-titled album, 1991 which was then i believe co-released by atlantic or re-released not entirely sure what the machinations were for that but uh atlantic eventually ended up releasing the record they went immediately back into the studio to record their second album the lizard which we are reviewing which was released in 1992 the album which you mentioned jay spawned the biggest hit single uh love is on the way i think this album actually got up to number 80 on the Billboard chart, and it sold over 500,000 copies, uh, according to the Wikipedia. So just before starting the tour for this record, bassist Tom Defile was fired. He was replaced by ex-Cold Sweat bassist Chris McLernan. You remember Cold Sweat, don't you, Jay? I don't. Me neither. Uh, they actually went to Sweden to record their third album, Water, and in 1993 during the recording uh, Matt Kramer became disgruntled with the direction of the band Uh, he both musically and stylistically he argued that there were financial issues with the band and tensions reached a boiling point at which point he left the band mid-session and returned to Florida with Kramer gone Bieler decided to take over all the vocal duties in addition to playing uh, guitar all the guitar I guess on the record They finished up the record in Tampa. Guitarist Pete Dombrowski was hired um, in time for the tour to support the record. And after the release, Atlantic dropped the band in 1994. A year later, the band signed to CMC International. And they released their fourth album, Devil in the Details, later that year. In 1997, the band attempted a reunion with Matt Kramer on vocals. Uh, Phil Verone had left the band at that point, was replaced by drummer Ricky Sanders, not former Washington wide receiver Ricky Sanders. Different word, Ricky <laughs> Sanders. The reunion was quite short, and Beeler left the band after two shows, and that effectively ended the band. They reunited in 2000 with Kramer, Verone, Defile, all involved. Beeler was uh, in another band at the time. It did not take part in the reunion. They toured... Members scattered, and for 12 years, the band uh, was no longer. They went off and did other projects, solo records, other bands, that sort of thing. And in 2012, September of 2012, via the Saigon Kick Facebook page, they announced that they would be returning with all original members, with dates to be announced shortly. However, February of 2013, a mere few months later, Tom Defile left the band... I guess it'd be a second time he left the band. I don't know who replaced him, but uh, they toured and have been touring. And in November of 2014, which is now, they have started discussing uh, the possibility of starting to record some new music. So there you go. That's the history of Saigon Kick. And if you'd like to suggest an album for us to review, please head on over to our request review page over at digmeoutpodcast.com. Jay, we got one piece of Facebook feedback for this record. Do you want to take a shot at who get, who left it for us? Chip. You are right. <laughs> Chip Midnight chimed in. He said, I saw Saigon Kick open for Rat at the Cleveland Agora just before their debut came out. The fact Rat had gone from playing arenas to playing smaller venues was a sign of the times, and Saigon Kick was a, fur- was a further sign that hair metal was dying. My friends and I were sort of freaked out by this alternative metal band. Matt Kramer had wild Charles Manson eyes and seemed to be insane, but the music was great. We all loved it. I got an advanced cassette of the lizard to review for the college paper and took it with me on a camping trip. When I put it in the boombox, I asked my friends to guess who it was. Somebody thought it was Ozzy. Somebody thought it was faith. No more. I sort of heard a Kings. I sort of heard Kings X definitely a diverse band. And when I'm glad I got to see a few times live,
0: he must've meant this record.
1: Yeah, he meant this record.
0: Because in 1988, Rat was still pretty big. They were touring arenas at that point for uh, Reach for the Sky. 1992 now, yeah, they weren't. So,
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Because that's what the first Icon Kick record came out in 88.
1: No, it came out in 91. Oh, okay. So that's possible. Okay, yeah. By 91.
0: Yeah, that 88-89 tour was Probably the last big tour that Rat did.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about what worked and what did not work for Saigon Kicks the Lizard. Jay, since you were the one who suggested this record, I'm going to start out with one thing that did work for me on this record. And I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about what Chip just mentioned, which is the diversity. Uh, of hearing uh, different bands. He, they mentioned, he mentioned Ozzy, Faith No More, King's X. I heard yep. those bands. I know what he's talking about. I uh-huh. also heard some a bit more, I guess you'd say, diverse influences. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I listen to a song like God of 42nd Street, I hear a, a slight Beatles influence. And then uh-huh. it turns out that on the Japanese release of this record, they included a cover of Dear Prudence. So that made sense to me when I read that cuz I can yeah. hear them dipping back into some of that like mid-late period Beatles I heard, not in terms of influence, but in terms of similar musical approach on a song like Hostile Youth, it reminded me of some of the heavier Mother Love Bone tracks, and you mentioned Mother Love Bone, Mm -hmm. Um, on a track that I didn't necessarily love, but I thought it was an interesting track, All I Want, which is on the back half of the record, it Mm kind of reminded me of like a Porno for Pyros uh, song, and then it also reminded me a lot of that Filter Take a Picture song which wouldn't come Mm. out for several years later. But you you see where I'm getting at. Like, There's a lot going on on this record, and quite a bit of it is heading off in directions that would not be where this band was expected to go after their first record in terms of being just a metal or alternative metal band. Like, They are exploring some very different areas, and when they do it well, they do it very well. Hostile Youth, God of 42nd Street, those are very cool songs that maintain... I guess you'd say the Saigon kick sort of sound, uh, more so than All I Want does, which has a mellower take than, or much more mellow take than a lot of the record. Uh, but I really enjoyed them playing around with a lot of diverse influences on this record. We'll get to what happens when that doesn't work out later, but. Uh, <laughs> Tell me something that you liked about this record, Jay.
0: I found the... Well, I'll tell you what I, more of what I found interesting was the songs that were heavy, say Hostile Youth and Freedom. I was shocked at how similar to approach it was to early Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and they these bands were really, you know, peers. So they weren't... I don't know that either was influencing either. I mean, they were doing... The, they were writing... Uh, the first Alice in Chains record was being written and recorded the same time this one was. And while I guess you could say uh, they were before them because yeah. they did their first record in 91, which yeah, sounds very similar to this one. It's not like this is a dramatic shift for them. I guess they were a little bit before Alice in Chains. But if I break it down, it's that really super crunchy drop tune guitar riff, pretty dark sounding musically and the vocal I think the vocal approach, while they don't get as kind of like um, dreary, they don't go quite as dark as as Alice in Chains does, just the approach of like the the constant harmonies and then the constant dual voices is very reminiscent. Some of the melodies are close. I think, and this is just on those these couple of, of heavier songs that, that you hear it, but the the big difference is, you know, they can go really light fast, like in terms of like light and dark, they can shift to something that sounds more major sounding and lighter very quickly, which Allison mm-hmm. chain doesn't tend to do. And that's where you, I think you get that Beatles kind of sense when they do that. You know, they it's mostly a single guitar um, double-tracked, which a lot of the early, you know, Allison Chains stuff was. And, you know, they've layered things a little bit more since then. But for the most part... You know, it's one guitar player. It's the same format, you know, one guitar player, one bass player, singer-drummer. Drum-wise, it's somewhat similar to how the, uh, the drums are in Alice in Chains. I think the one of the big differences is just overall, I think, um, so I can kick sounds a little thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just something missing there rhythmically. Uh, potentially, maybe it's the bass, but there's something missing there that, that feels slightly thin or hollow as compared to Alice in Chains, but I was just really shocked at how, how close it was, um, which I found really interesting. Um, you know, the, both these two bands had a similar story. You know, guys who came out of that 80s metal scene and were trying to do something different um, were recognized early on as being, you know, potentially revolutionaries in terms of, you know, this, this genre. And um, one clearly broke through and the other one didn't. And, uh, right. Maybe maybe as we break this down a little bit more, we'll start to you know peel back the the layers of this and, and start to realize why maybe why they didn't break through and Alice in Chains did. But on, on those songs, those are the ones that that really stood out to me as like, oh wow, I didn't realize how how similar this was. And it, this isn't a scenario where they were you know they heard Alice in Chains were like, oh my wow, we know what we're gonna do with our band now. And this things right. happening at the same time. So,
1: and I think that uh, the Alice in Chains connection. Um, and I mentioned uh, the Mother Love Bone as well. In, in terms of the heavier stuff, I think what those two bands did, Allison Chains in the in the more immediate connection, is that Allison Chains wrote really simple hooks to a lot of yeah. their songs, and they and, and Saigon Kick does not necessarily always write the simplest hook to yeah. the song. They definitely the, the mention of King's X is a very interesting one. I think that this band was probably Influenced by them In a lot of ways I hear it a lot On like Peppermint Tribe Is a Mm. song that Totally could have been a, A King's X Influenced riff It just mm-hmm. has that like stomp beat to it that kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of King's X, And I, I think that they do a good job of, of taking the heft of metal of eighties metal. But as you mentioned, like sort of doing it in a way that's the same way that Allison changed it where they're, they're, they're t- it's a different take on it. It's a darker take. And I guess where you, that's where you get the alternative metal sort of yeah. tag. So it's not, Cheery, and a lot of these songs are they remind me of um the uh the subhuman race album by Skid Row. Like, mm-hmm. this is a band that's starting to write some very like political and um social, a lot of social commentary going on in the lyrics. And I'm not talking about like the more, I guess, generic stuff, like they're digging in a little bit deeper. Matt Kramer is, yeah, is, is doing a little bit more uh than you would expect on an, a quote unquote you know hair metal. Album. Yeah. At the same time, then, some of the stuff, well, here, the, in terms of what I didn't like, I think that the fact that they're willing to take chances leaves some of the more generic, I'd say, like rock songs a bit behind. um Like, for example, All I'll Write. Mm. When I hear that song, it just sounds like they were writing an, a, a Guns N' Roses song. Yeah,
0: I had the same thing.
1: it it doesn't have any personality to it the way that the other songs do it just sounds like a carbon copy of
0: yeah and it's like missing that crucial second guitar that makes Guns N' Roses Guns N' Roses so you sort of have this the slash riff without the Izzy riff which is kind of boring
1: There's a couple of tunes that are that are like that that are just they just sound like they were the they were a little they wouldn't go the whole way with all the songs so they wrote some of the songs that probably were going to appeal to fans of the first record and and are going to be more familiar sounding and then there are a couple songs that are just I don't understand they do first of all they have a couple of they have three instrumental tracks that.
0: Are there three? Or one? two, sorry.
1: There's Cruelty, track the opener one, which should yeah. be about a minute long, and it's almost three minutes long. S- and Sleep. And then Sleep. Yeah. Don't need those. Uh, I don't think they add anything to the record. Or at yeah. least the first one, cut it down. And then the, the last song, Chanel. Yeah. It doesn't need... I, I, I. It should have been like the hidden track. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's a 16-song record really hurts the album. Because yeah. it takes a while to get through this record. These are not long songs, but they're loud and they wear you down a little bit uh, on, a, on some of the tracks. So I found myself really liking the first half of the record and then getting into the second half of the record. Basically, after Love is on the Way, I, I was not a huge fan of the second half of the record. World Goes Around is an interesting song. I think it's the highlight of the second half of the record. It felt a These, little like uh, the cult Sonic Temple. Yeah, that's a good that's a good comparison. I was trying to think of who it sounded like, but it has this big epic feel with these interesting dynamics going on in the song. Yeah. Um, that a lot of the tracks are, and it's a bit longer. It's almost five minutes, but I don't mind them expanding the song a little bit if they're gonna do something more interesting. Yeah, uh, like they do on that song. So it's a, it, this is really an album of two halves for me. The first half pretty much. After the first song, I, I like everything. My dog, you can get rid of that song. But uh, hostile youth feel the same way. God, Forty Second Street, Perpetual Tribe, Love Is On The Way, those are all good tracks. And then it just starts to—I feel like the quality control starts to go down, which is going to happen on a 16-song record. And um, yeah, it's—it's a—it's a schizophrenic record. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. What do you think of? Uh... In spot here, but Mrs. Jones, specifically the chorus in that song, how did you feel about that?
1: It kind of reminded me of it was a very, like, I don't know, it sounded like it uh, could have been like Bullet Boys or something. Oh, okay. It just had this, like, very traditional sort of 80s metal feel to me. Um, okay.
0: I thought the chorus really showed the power pop aspect of the band. And there's moments, that's the most, to me, the most blatant.
1: Well, maybe Enough's Enough is a better.
0: Yeah, and there's there's some extreme, the band extreme. There's some moments like mm-hmm. that on here, too. That's that's the comparison I had um, for this song was that band. But it also revealed, you know, the power pop aspect of this. And you mentioned the Beatles, obviously, yeah. which is a huge influence in what they're trying to do from a harmony standpoint. And you hear other moments in the record, you know, kind of tip their hat to that or bring that element to the forefront. At this point, when I was listening to the record, you know, the 40-year-old me... <laughs> trying to figure this out. I was struggling with those parts. Part of me really liked that idea, especially, and even like a song like Chanel, had they not done it as like a cheesy, you know, genre jazz song, but actually tried to do it as a rock song and then it maybe embraced some of that, the power pop side of them a little, themselves a little bit more. I can't help but wonder if that wouldn't have been more successful being mm-hmm. that they, you know, that they, they had, definitely had aspects of that already down, especially vocally. But then again, what made them unique was the combination of that with the heavier stuff. So maybe, you know, the material that was the tuned down riffs with that type of vocal approach over top was where they needed to be. And then there's all this stuff sort of mixed in the record that I think you've, you've been hitting on, you know, things like in six, eight time and, acoustic y kind of strummy things and um just you know instrumentals and just stuff that a little bit of, almost like all they want I thought had like kind of a U2 feel. Remember that song track twelve. Mm-hmm. Um so they go into these all these other areas that are maybe outside of that formula of you know heavy riff power pop e harmony over top and maybe those are missteps. I think though now that's perspective I have. I think though that at the time I had the record, I tended to like the stuff that was a little less heavy. I don't. I think it connected with me at that time a little bit better. I didn't quite get the heavy stuff yet. I wasn't there yet from a. Not that I didn't like heavy music, but I didn't quite get the really simple like, tuned down single guitar riff. You know, um, it seemed it's it seemed a little thin, for me right. even though it was heavy. So I sent them like the stuff that was more layered and lusher sounding. So I don't know. I was kind of not quite sure what the answer was for what this band should have been doing. There's there's a lot of good ideas here and a lot of cool stuff, but not quite sure what the answer was.
1: Well, clearly they were evolving and they didn't exactly know where they were going, I guess. Mm-hmm. Can you shine some light on the first record? Because I haven't heard that. Is it much more like streamlined and straightforward as compared to this record, or are they dabbling in some?
0: It's pretty similar. Okay. It's, it's probably, I'm not as familiar with it as this one and the one after it, but it's it's not dramatically different. Um, it's still got the heavy riffs. It's still got sort of the experimental alterna, Gene's addiction-y sounds here and there, but it also slips into the power poppy kind of Beatles-esque harmonies and so I think it has a very similar kind of flavor that this record has. I don't think it's dramatically different. There's a little, probably a little less reverb. <laughs> I think this, this record might have the most reverb I ever put on guitars. There's <laughs> like, a lot of <laughs>
1: reverb. Yeah.
0: That And that was, uh, you know, one thing now that I just, it makes it very hard to appreciate the record. It's like, geez, you know. Uh, there's one that's kind of got a punky kind of feel to it. Body bag. It's yeah. got a really you know, heavy riff. It's got, I think, what they're, you know, kind of going for a punk attitude. But it's so delayed and reverbed out that it has no immediacy. It has no, you know what I mean? It doesn't feel close to you or intimate or in your face. It feels like it's in a cathedral on the other side of the, the neighborhood. <laughs> you know?
1: It's, like, it's you know a little I mean? ridiculous. Because I think it's, they're trying to be, all like, super serious. Yeah, and he's singing like all low and barking and, and it the, out,
0: and the production doesn't enhance it. I mean, it just it, the production is actually complete opposite of what you would want, right? And I think the production is what holds the record together in in one, in theory, right? If you if you wash everything with that heavy reverb delay, you um, you know do the harmony vocal on every song, and really just kind of approach everything with the same, you know, heavy handed production techniques. It all starts to like on the surface sound the same. But I think as we found when you dig in, you actually analyze the types of songs and, you know, what they're doing at the heart of the material, it's actually pretty different. And then the production suddenly becomes an issue. <laughs> you know, because it's not true to what they're intending to do. Right. If that makes sense.
1: No, I it does. Yeah. It does.
0: Sort of like just try to watch, they try to whitewash all of the material um, with the same production. It, it doesn't quite work.
1: I, I feel like, uh, <laughs> like they probably recorded the record and then just somebody just as just over the whole record just dropped this massive reverb. Yeah. <laughs> over the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about overall reviews of this record. Uh, worthy album, better EP decent single what is your rating jay on this record that you brought to the table
0: oh it's so hard i mean i think that i'm at the point where there's some songs on here that i have an attachment to because i used to like them a lot and i'm having a hard time figuring out if i'm responding to them now because i generally still like them or just i'm familiar with them (laughs) you know what i mean right um so i i think love is on the way is is a brilliant song i think it's you know it's placed mm-hmm. right in the middle of the record, and it's it's just really well executed in terms of it's so restrained. If you think about it, and you even described it. I mean, there's no bass on it. The drummer barely plays. Like he hit, does, like a couple tom hits in the chorus, and like uses mallets on a cymbal. Uh, it's really all about the songwriting and the harmonies. That's what makes that whole song work. I wish they could have taken that restraint and applied it to a handful of the other material on here. I think they probably would have had a, a really really good ep um so you know i think from a material standpoint it's it's probably an ep territory it's certainly I mean, 16 songs is ridiculous you're not gonna get there's no way you're gonna have an album a solid album of 16 songs i don't care who you are i'm probably at a, like a five or six song ep
1: I'm in the same ballpark. Um, I would say that there are six really good songs on this record. And then there you start to get into some stuff that is just okay to mediocre. And that's probably six more songs. And then there are probably four songs that I could do without. So if I was feeling generous, I'd say this is a 12-song record. Uh, but I really, it's a six-song EP for me. So... We're in the same ballpark, but I think it's worth checking out because it's in that weird early '90s period where, you know, this was a band that was signed very late in the game in terms of being a a quote unquote hair band, but they really Mm -hmm. weren't. They were an they were a metal band with some diverse influences. So it represents this sort of weird crossover period where bands were trying to basically appeal to, you know, those eighties metal audiences while also trying to write some stuff that was probably more indicative of where they were at musically. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a transitional record and it's an interesting one. So
0: they were like, uh, the first record was very much maybe, uh, critic's darling. You know, it was in hit parader or maybe even like a rolling stone. Like you would see, you know, it buried in the back of the reviews and it would mm-hmm. get four stars, and the, whoever reviewed it would be super excited about it. But commercially, it didn't do anything. So there was always that. I think that's where that potential, that sense of potential came from.
1: So it was like the reverse Brian Hoyer. Brian Hoyer is not the critic's darling. He's the fan favorite.
0: <laughs> oh. He's the working man's other, QB. That's a whole other discussion.
1: All right. Well, Jay, that's our take on Saigon Kick the lizard if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at itunes of course you can suggest an album for us to review we won't get to it until 2015 because we're all booked up for the rest of this year but head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit up our request review page to do so we only have i think three more reviews left to do this year and two of those are going to be requested reviews so they got them in at the wire some good stuff i I, i'm gonna tell you that right now it's gonna be a fun year to finish out so as always for jay i'm tim thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode dig me out